Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. L. Daniel Hawk. He's a professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Ashland Seminary. We're going to be talking about Old Testament violence, providential errancy, and all kinds of big questions. So Dan, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Oh, I'm, do I'm doing great. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. That's good. I'm so excited for this conversation. I was like, spent 20 minutes trying to get connected and literally like everything lined up just as we're going live. So <laughs> glad we it all worked out. But before we get into the content of today, Dan, can you just like introduce yourself, talk about like who you are and what you do? Okay. Uh, well, um, I'm uh, presently uh, professor of Old Testament Hebrew at Ashland Theological Seminary in a beautiful Ashland, Ohio, which is right on the edge of a very large Amish settlement. So, uh, you know, Ashland is where the Amish come for fun. So uh, I've, been, I've been kind of party central, but I've uh, <laughs> been here at, at, at Ashland for more than 25 years and uh, in theological education, higher education for a lot longer. Um, I got my MDiv from Asbury Seminary and uh, did five years in the pastorate and went back, got a PhD in, in Old Testament at Emory University. And, I'm United Methodist pastor and uh, clergyman and stay active in the church and just have the best. I have the greatest job in the world, man. I, I, I get to talk and and think about the Bible and and uh, just uh, all day. It's it's great. Mm -hmm. I get paid to do it. Well, actually, uh, I get paid to grade papers, but I teach for free. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say in like <laughs> the life of a teacher um yeah. but yeah so i'm curious before we get into like the nitty-gritty bible stuff which is so much fun uh being from the year ohio have you ever heard of dare dutchman <laughs> yeah i have actually i've actually eaten there yeah <laughs> I, I went there we, we had a basketball tournament my high school went to a few years um we always went to dare dutchman outside of columbus and it was just like the best food ever um so yeah. you're talking about growing up in like amish country in ohio and i was like all those members came back to me. Um, you come back to Amish country, I'll, I'll take you to an even better restaurant that, that nobody knows about, except except folk here, folks around here. <laughs> well, I got to get my way from like Virginia to Ohio now. I'm excited. But um, for today, we're going to be talking about um, Old Testament violence and Dan's perspective on like understanding like the problem of the violent God and what's going on here. So I'll give it to you, Dan. What is the problem of the violent God as you see it in like scripture? Well, I, I think there are, there are a number of, of issues that the violence of God raises, um, and those issues go way back in, in terms of the way that the church has tried to grapple with them. I mean, the, the, the biggest issue is uh, this kind of how, how do you reconcile a God who appears to be, well, actually is involved in just massive violence and orders violence, and in, I mean, killing and all of those types of things. How how do you reconcile that uh, depiction of, of God with the God who uh, comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who who tells us to you know love our enemies and uh, to turn the other cheek, and and who is is pointedly um, someone who 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 wants to teach us and move us away from violence rather than endorse violence in any way. So that's that's a big issue. Uh, and that's been an issue, again, all the way back uh, to the early dec uh, early centuries of the church, um, not only working through that theologically, but also answering critics of Christianity who say, well, you know, back, way back then, 
I mean, well, you know, the God of Israel isn't any different than the gods of of Egypt and and Rome and Greece and um, so so that's that's an issue, the canonical issue, and uh, a second big part of that problem is is uh, in, related to that is just kind of the consistency of, of, of God's character, because some of the violence that God appears to be, that God is involved with appears to be um, uh, just maybe, you know, a, a little bit over the top. Mm. So uh, Abraham asks a good question when he's arguing with God uh, at when he, uh, God discloses to him what he's about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right. Uh, so it, it raises questions for people uh, about, you know, people who are really trying to think through theologically. And so it raises that question. And, and finally, there's just the question, which is comes in and out, which is the question of um, the impact of these violent portraits of God on the faith and practice of believers. And the fact that the church uh, has an unfortunate history of its own implication in violence and colonialism and conquest and all kinds of bloody things. Um, and in, in many cases has justified that violence by connecting it to some instance or reason for violence that they read God having uh, a part of in the Old Testament. So so one of the old uh, one of the old criticisms of Christianity along these lines is, well, doesn't you know your God is really violent, mm -hmm. and doesn't a violent God produce violent followers? So mm -hmm. uh, it kind of undercuts credibility, yeah. um, especially especially you know in an age right now where there's just a lot of violence that is being religiously sanctioned. Um, in a lot of quarters, it's kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, and that's why um, this video is part of like a series of interviews we've been doing on like exploring like Old Testament violence and like different views and different like ways of thinking about it. Because like this is a very big issue, like especially like when I interact with like atheists and people, not just online, but like like the, my friends I know that aren't Christians. Like this is one of the most common things, like at least in my mind, before like the pro even like before the problem of evil or like why should we believe in God in the first place? A lot of the times it's like, well, isn't this God in the old Testament, like this like moral monster who's like commanding the killing and like genocide with these peoples. And it's like, well, we have to talk about this. It's a very serious question. Um, so I'll turn it to you because the first question I have for you is this question of the ruining and remaking of creation. So we look at that and like, how does that impact your view on old Testament violence? And what I'm referring to here is we have got the creation of the world, at least is perceived in Genesis. Then we have a flood where God seems to destroy the world. Um, what does this teach us about like the violence of God and understanding him? Oh, okay. Let's, let's yeah. start off with a big one. <laughs> so, <laughs> no light punches here. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for the warning. So in this flood narrative, uh, there, there's so much going on in, in that story that, um, we really need to pay attention to, uh, you know, he, uh, the narrative of the Hebrew Bible is really subtle. Uh, it values subtlety. It, it compacts language, and th the flood story itself is actually told. It's it's kind of like two voices are mm -hmm. blending together to tell the story of what happens. And so, 
the flood is like the first massive instance that God is a, a violence that God is a part of. Um, and uh, we'll probably talk about this later, but but the, the, the idea of, of the God of the Old Testament as a punishing God, who's just just gets angry at sin and just desire, just decides to, to take a big you know human swatter mm -hmm. out and squat things, smack things. Um, so that that idea has even played into some of the translations of of some of the Old Testament texts. So uh, to cut to cut to the chase, um, when this flood narrative is introduced, uh, there there are two things that that the narrator tells us, and then God Himself says. And the first thing is that that God looks at the creation, and it's just completely ruined, and people are completely violent. the The earth is full of violence, and people are just so saturated with violence that it's pretty much all that's going on. And uh, and the response, and 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 the narrator tells us God's response to that, and it's not anger which is really important um, because the first, the first kind of emotional language response of God to, to kind of this destruction of his world is grief. Uh, God was sorry, you know, and he's sorry and he sees all of this. And then it says actually in, in, in Genesis, uh, I think it's five through seven, six, five through seven, um, he says it twice. He's he's grieved. Uh, so that's that's an important piece. So what God does uh, with in response to the the flood arises and is connected not so much at least explicitly with God's anger, but is really connected uh, is 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 some way associated with God's grief, which would which would signal at least to me that what God does. Uh, God does with great reluctance. Hmm. So I have to get a little technical here. So you yeah. move on into into. So God says, "Yep, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna erase the earth." Uh, and then a, a, a few verses later, uh, God just it, we have another. God looked at creation; it was corrupted in God's sight, or corrupted, ruined, messed up, falling apart. <laughs> just an ungodly mess um and this 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 word corrupted corrupted just gets repeated a number of times and um god says something really interesting in response to to what god is seeing and it it it, it develops and reinforces uh that earlier statement of what god saw and how it grieved god and it's it's usually translated something like i've I've decided to make an end to all flesh because everything is ruined. So I'm going to destroy it because everything is violent. Um, but actually that runs roughshod over the grammar of the Hebrew text. It doesn't work at all grammatically. Um, and actually the, the Hebrew text, uh, really kind of rendered very re rendered 
very riddly, literally, uh, has God saying, um, the end of all flesh is in my sight, um, which suggests an alternative and more grammatically faithful way of reading what God is saying. And that is, uh, I'm seeing the end of all of this. I'm seeing where this is going. So, and, and there's a wordplay that doesn't usually translate um, in, into English translations. God literally, he uses the same word. So I will ruin. Uh, he literally decides to ruin, which is what's already happening. So God, in a sense, is ruining an already ruined uh, creation, which I take as a way of say, saying God's decision is I'm just going to accelerate it all. I'm going to you know, I'm, I'm going to complete, I'm going to get in there and complete the process so that, um, you know, we can build up once again. You know, the flood is an image of, you know, it takes us back to the first chapter of Genesis. Everything is just kind of nothing anymore. And then mm. you can build it up. So yeah. it's, it's not, in other words, it's, it's, it's a reluctant and grief-associated response by God to accelerate ruination so that uh, creation can be renewed through a righteous family. Mm. So you're saying then with the flood, like, I think there's a lot of times, especially like in like the context of like talking about like Old Testament violence, people want to be like, it's like, well, God did like X and like, is this immoral or moral or blah, blah, blah. Um, that's how these things go. So like depress that a little bit. Like, so would you say that like God would like, he, did, he commands this flood that we read about in Genesis, but then it's like, it's not something that he just like was like really excited to do one day. He's like, yeah, I, like today's the day I get to like drown the world or part of the world or whatever, like the flood account's saying. It's something that he really like didn't want to do, but it was like kind of like almost like a last resort kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's one way of putting it. And, you know, the particularly the prophetic literature, the prophets speak of sometimes God needs to, God needs to tear down in order to build up, you know, God needs to uproot. I'm, I'm referencing Jeremiah here. God needs to uproot uh, in order to plant. So there are some times when things just get so bad that they reach a tipping point and uh, everything's going to be destroyed. And actually one, one could, I'm not sure that I would, but, but one could argue that God is just, just kind of brings things to a really quick end, you know, mm. but the main point is that, God is, I read the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, as a God who is resolutely and relentlessly at war with those forces that destroy the creation that God called good. Um, and sometimes that means that God just has to, has to bring things all the way down. So mm -hmm. as, as a last resort... So, so if I could, I'll, I'll just put in this little bit to, to frame that, that comment. So God's first disclosure about who, his character is uh, in the book of Exodus, right after the uh, golden calf ex episode. And God says that he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Hmm. 
and abundant in steadfast love. And, and Israel, you, you see that refrain all the way, repeated all the way throughout the Old Testament. This is who God says God is. And we're invited to, I think, see through that lens and then realize, as you, as you were suggesting, yeah, God, God just didn't get ticked off and said, all right, I've had it, everybody out of the pool. <laughs> it's uh, um, God's, God's anger is really slow uh, to develop. Mm. Uh, and, and that suggests to me only as a last resort. Mm. Yeah, that's super helpful. So is there anything you else you want to talk about, like how God approaches like interacting with the world in like the book of Genesis um, when looking at like the context of like trying to understand like Old Testament violence? And I know there's a lot of things I'm sure you could say, um, but yeah. Yeah, so um, I think one thing that's really important is to step back for a minute. I would say two real, uh, real important um, things. And one is, that the God of the Bible is a relational deity. I get this from uh, an Old Testament theologian named Terence Fretheim. Walter Brueggemann also kind of explores this relational aspect of God. God is a relational being. Um, and that begins, you know, God could do everything mm -hmm. by himself, but God chooses to work in, in creation in partnership with human friends. Uh, with, so you know, he wants, he desires relationship. He cultivates relationship. I mean, that's the story. That's what we see of God beginning with the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter twelve. So, you know, so so that means that God, in a sense, is going to ask human beings to work with him to renew renew this broken, warped, horrible, managed, mangled, violent creation. Um, and what that means is that God, you know, if, if, if this is truly a relationship, uh, that God allows the human partner to, uh, to goof up, make mistakes, uh, and you know, that's the nature of relationship. I mean, you got to give each other freedom to, um, you know, to act. So that's, that's the relational piece, and that's a real, I think that's a core affirmation. Genesis says a number of times, God came down, you know, he, he descended into a world of violence. Mm -hmm. And God partners with human beings, full well knowing that the human beings that he's partnering with are, are capable of tremendous acts of stupidity and stubbornness. But God chooses to do so anyway. So that's, and that means if you're, you're working, if God is working relationally, things are going to get really fluid and messy. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the main thing. The other thing is that I think it's important to unravel the idea of God's anger and God's judgment, uh, or punishment, uh, and God's violence. Uh, God is sometimes angry, but not always violent when he is angry. Uh, God is sometimes violent, but the violence is, is not always an act of anger or a, a, an infliction of punishment. So you could say a little bit more about that, but I think that's, you know, those three strands 
are, are really central to the way that a, a lot of people look at God and God's interactions with creation in the Old Testament. I mean, God just gets angry because people disobey him or sin or defy him. So God gets angry and uh, God decides to punish. And when God punishes, it's violent. Mm-hmm. So they're all kind of wrapped up. We need to we need to untangle them because I don't think that's really the portrait. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we read the Old Testament well, that that is that that we construct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful, and I appreciate that. And we're, what we're trying to do here is kind of build context and understanding like the violence of God. And the hope is by the end of this discussion to get to like the talking about like the conquest of the Canaanites and like well, what does that mean? Trying to understand that. So we're going to move on here to like the Book of Exodus. Um, and there's more questions here related to like. Um, how we can try to like understand like divine action and divine violence. Obviously, like it's, it's a very famous story and it's very rooted in like the tradition, like the Judeo-Christian tradition of God um, bringing the, the plagues on the people of Egypt to bring out the promised land, culminating in like um, the killing of like all the firstborn of Egypt. So when we're looking at this, Dan, how does this impact your view on like divine action and divine violence, trying to understand what's going on here? Yeah, so, um, so again, there's a, there's a cry we're told that, that God hears the cry of the Israelites and that draws him down it, 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 in, into. Um, but it's really interesting. Anyway. So, so God is drawn into the most powerful um, civilization of the time. And the, the plague narrative really is kind of God going mano y mano with, uh, with the alpha human male. I mean, it's mm. Pharaoh is like the epitome, the apex of human power in defiance of the creator. So what is God doing? Uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, when God calls Moses to deliver the people, one of the, one of the things that Moses says in return is, well, well, what I say, the God of your ancestors has come to deliver you. Uh, who should I, who should I say you are? Mm, yeah. It's like, Okay. You know, people don't, so God is in a sense an unknown deity in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, even like the God of Israel, I mean, even Moses is saying, I, I'm not sure people will, will, will really under, know who you are. So um, so with this idea that, that God is working in collaboration with Israel to renew the world, um, God enters in to this uh, really uh, power-laden, violent situation on the side of Israel and against the the great power. And and God says right at the beginning, I know, that's in chapter 3 of Exodus, I know that Pharaoh will not let you go except by the exercise of superior force. So here's a God, God enters into a world. I mean, the gods of Egypt have been worshiped and validated and looked to for centuries upon centuries. They're well-established. They up, they uphold the order and the power of Egypt. And you've got a God of slaves who, 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 whose old people don't quite know who he is, who steps in. What, so what's, what's the new God on the block have to do yeah. to you know, to get some credibility, mm. uh, to get some notice. It, so when when you read through the plague narratives, 
there is a there is a refrain that 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 God um, that God repeats, and that is, uh, I'm doing this, or they will know this, so that you will know, or they will know that I am Yahweh. So one of the threads throughout this whole narrative is God's concern that people know who he is because people don't. And it's, it's, it's not only I want the, so that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, but he says the same thing to Israel. So God seems to be, if we follow it, God seems to be really concerned that people know who he is. And knowing who he is means um, means overpowering uh, the most powerful uh, human agent in the world at the time, who is up who is upgirded by powerful, well-known deities. And God is, I think, God is is deeply concerned. Uh, in the restoration of creation that not only Israel, but all the nations know that there is a God and it's not Pharaoh. It's not the gods of Egypt. It's not the gods of Canaan. There is a God who is unlike and, and uh, unlike all other gods and who has the power, um, has the power to, 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 to do what he pleases. And what he pleases to do is to deliver people from oppression and, and fulfill his promises to the ancestors of that nation. So it's it's just kind of a a public, you know, kind of a very public battle. Um, and what's interesting in the narrative, if you look at the narrative, the Exodus narrative and the way it's told, I mean, Pharaoh doesn't have a name. He doesn't have an identity. And when you when you read the first few chapters of Exodus, there are all kinds of Israelite names. <laughs> it's kind of a way of saying, you know, Pharaoh, yeah, you know, Pharaoh who really thinks he's God and, and really thinks he's all powerful is nothing. Mm. God's people. Yeah. People it's so cool. It's super cool to think about. Um, and I do want to say we're hopefully going to do a little bit of Q&A at the end. So if you have questions, feel free to put those in. Um, we obviously do Super Chats first if you want to support the show through that. Um, but, like, how should we then understand, like, the relationship between, like, divine anger and its impact on divine violence? Um, like, we've talked about things like the flood or, like, the plagues in Exodus. Like, um, like how do we understand, like, God being, like, angry at, say, like, sin or certain peoples? Um, but then, like, that translating into or the lack thereof of a translating into like divine violence. Like, how do we like look at this um, as we try to, before we get into the question of like the Canaanites and whatnot. Yeah, the easy one. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I th again, I think the thread really the, the, the real central thread here is um, God's decision to enlist human partners in God's renewing work. So, you know, God doesn't, the biblical witness is that God doesn't stay above everything and, and just say, oh, too bad, you know, maybe I'll pull a string here. God gets down. And, you know, it, it, if you think about it, it, it you know, it, it, in a sense, it costs God something to identify 
with first a family in Genesis and then with a nation. I mean, if God's going to identify with a nation in the sight of all of the nations, you know, Israel is is the the people who are going to display the creator to all the world. Um, you know, that means that God's going to have to to look after them, to defend them, to uphold them, you know, all of the ways that 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 cause people to say, wow, this this God really is God. So that's the central thread. So, um, so the first time, and I think this is significant. So the, the first time that God um, is angry, God's not angry at anybody all the way through Genesis. Mm. I mean, so, so, and that, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, uh, Tower of Babel. Nowhere are we told that God is angry there, even though, as as I noted before, God's violent, but at the flood, God participates in violence, God accelerates violence, but um, God's not said to be angry. Uh, The first time God God is said to be angry is when God is talking with uh, Moses, and he calls Moses, and Moses isn't really up for the task, you know, so so, you know, he keeps giving excuses. Wait, 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 wait God, who, you know, uh, what if they don't believe me? Uh, well, God, uh, who, they won't know who I am. Or, or, or God, I just, you know, I flunked speech 101. I don't know how to, I don't know how to speak in front of people. And, and, and Moses, you know, and God's all, you know, very patient. You know, I got, I got you covered. I got that, got that. But I mean, it's like, you know, after the fifth excuse, the fifth excuse of Moses is, God, could you please find somebody else? And mm-hmm. at that point, we're told that God gets angry at Moses. Mm-hmm. But God, but the expression of God's anger is not to punish Moses. What he says is he accommodates. And he says, all right, well, you know, your brother Aaron's coming and, you know, he, he's a really good speaker. So I'll tell you what. We'll take care of things. So in that that very, you know, so that very uh, um, kind of meaningful terse exchange just demonstrates again God is slow to anger, but if you keep pushing him, you know, he'll he'll do something. But mm-hmm. God's anger does not issue in punishment. Now, likewise, first time God judges, um, and that's. That's right after. That's that's in Genesis four. Um, the first, God confronts sin. Uh, God judges sin, and that's that's when Cain kills his brother Abel. And in that story, God doesn't kill Cain for killing Abel. Uh, instead, pretty remarkably, Cain says, "You know, God says, well, you know." The, the whole ground is cursed. It's not going to yield for you. So you're just going to have to wander around. And Cain says, oh, God, that's too much. So here's the murderer talking to the judge and saying, come on, you're lighting up. Uh, this is too much. And, and, and remarkably, uh, God says, all right, I'll put a mark on you so that anyone meeting you won't. So he actually defends and you know, this person who's committed this crime. So God's first response to human sin, human violence, is mercy. Hmm. So I think those instances, and there are a lot more like them, really 
prompt us to say, you know, judgment and anger uh, and violence, you know, it, you know, they're they're all not they're not fused in the thinking and practice of God. God mm. is concerned with renewing creation, not punishing, not necessarily punishing every instance of defiance and disobedience that God encounters. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think that's a great point. Um, as we get into this question of like what's going on with like the Canaanites and Old Testament conquest of like trying to understand a God who seems like like violence isn't like what he wants to do first. Um, so then we get into like this question of like, especially with like the Canaanites, like how do we understand the, the stories of God um, committing, say, like, conquest and like destroying like entire groups of peoples, which some would say was like divine genocide. Um, yeah. And then so I have that question of like, how do we understand this? And then like in your view, Dan, is God really like commanding like genocide or like um, like to kill it, like a mass killing of like a group of people? So not the easiest yeah. question in the world. Yeah, not the easiest question. But, you know, it's really it's it's it is connected to the Exodus story. Mm. So, you know, God kills babies in mm. Exodus, right? Mm-hmm. Firstborn son. I mean, all all ages. Um and, and God uses an agent there, and, and it's a spiritual figure. It's the angel, you know, the angel of death. So, you know, we're a lot more comfortable with that, even though there's kind of the same kinds of things going on. Mm-hmm. The only real difference is that God uses a human agent in Canaan. But um, I think we need to pay attention, first of all, to uh, the reason that... Um, God gets involved. So um, if God is going to, I mean, part of the whole plan through working through a family and identifying with a nation who's going to be a light to all of the nations um, is you've got to have a place Hmm. with God. You've got, I mean, that's Eden. If you're going to remind people and steer people back to Eden, you've got to have a place where people can live with God, enjoy God's blessing, live in harmony with God, obedience to God, all of these things that that God looks for in terms of restoring and renewing the earth. So, you know, in that sense, um, Canaan is that space, and God makes that very clear to Abraham and and to Isaac and to Jacob. It's one of these days, it's going to be yours. Um is, and so the the right the biblical rationale that God gives the dominant biblical rationale is it for bringing Israel into Canaan is uh, that God does this in fulfillment of God's promise. Mm-hmm. So uh, I mean, there's there's no getting around that God is uh, involved here um, violently. I mean, what? But interestingly enough, God's first way of talking about God's violence and what God's going to do, He says, "I'm going to drive them out." Hmm. You know, I'll send the hornet. That's in, in Exodus 23. I'm going to bring you into this land, and and I'm going to expel the people. And so that's the, that's basically what God says and tells Moses and tells Israel at Sinai that God's going to do, so that people can can come in. Um, his people can can take the land. Uh, that's important because um, when you look at the book of Joshua uh, and you read it, 
there's all this language in the first 12 chapters about Israel wiping out, you know, city after city after city, you know, God conquers the king and Israel comes in and they wipe out the population. And, you know, and, and God in, in the first three instances at Jericho and I and Gibeon, uh, you know, we're told how God does these incredible uh, acts, you know, to, to bring victory to Israel. And then it's, it's kind of like, okay, you got the idea. So we'll just kind of summarize everything else that mm -hmm. happens. after that. So you've got this, this whole, and you get the, the idea that, man, Israel comes in and they're wiping people out and they're killing everybody. And, and uh and and nobody is able to withstand them they're invincible god's doing all this great thing as i you know and the message is it, it's god who's getting the victory and israel you know grabs hold of the promises takes possession of the territory because they're obedient and so you've got this huge you end this section with this this kind of these summaries that say and israel took all the land mm -hmm. And you end with this list of 31 kings. Just, just in case you missed it, here's, here's the list of all the powerful kings that God swept away. And by the way, there's a lot of langu linguistic correspondence going on here and, and with the Exodus. But anyway, um, so, so you, you get that in chapter 12. I mean, you get this grand summary and, and, and they took all the land and they, you know, nobody withstood them and they killed everybody who breathed. And then chapter 13, uh, we open up with, and, and Joshua was an old man, and the Lord said, you're an old man. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of territory that remains to be possessed. Mm -hmm. And then there's this long and broad description of all the land Israel has not taken. And as you move into that section, you get these you get these really strange notes because most of that section is about how ver the various tribes are, are allotted their, their particular territories. But you get these little notes that the people of Judah couldn't drive out, you know, couldn't conquer Jerusalem. Mm. Wait a minute. Uh, back in the first part, the king of Jerusalem died in battle or the, the, the people of Manasseh or the people of Ephraim couldn't drive out. And it, it's the expelling language. Um, and, and it's just, it's just like, it's, it's this huge case of textual whiplash. Mm -hmm. I mean, could you go, wait a minute. So uh, if we entertain the possibility that we have a really sophisticated narrator who's, who's doing some really important theological work with us um one of the you know we we're prompted to look back at all of that yeah they killed everybody language and they they didn't have you know it raises a question and it just so happens that that kind of language of our god you know kind of whooped everybody and, mm -hmm. and our god did big things and we wiped everybody out that's pretty common in the military literature of the ancient near east it's basically the way that you talk about your triumphs and the triumph of your deity 
Mm -hmm. um, so, and it's it's replete. So it, it's kind of standard military jargon. So there's a there's a a a a, a, uh, a an Egyptian pharaoh named Merneptah who erected a, a victory stela about all in 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 the in uh, uh, the the twelfth uh, century. 13th century, and he mentions the people he had a campaign up into Canaan. He mentions the people that he 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 conquered, and he mentions a people named Israel, and he said they're no more. Hmm. Well, obviously that's not the case. Yeah. So what happens is, you know what, you know it's like it's it's like you get the you get the standard military braggadocio version. And then you get, which is important. I mean, it, it, theologically, it does some really important things. But then you get the back to the, yeah, what this was is just like God said, we're, we're expelling them. We're doing it little by little. So in other words, God's still involved in pushing them out. But God is, you know, God, that, that stuff about God commanding genocide and wiping them out. And that's, hmm. you know, the, the book itself you know, prompts us to look at that and say, all right, I recognize what this is. This is mm -hmm. a lot of rhetoric and it's important rhetoric. And it's, you know, it, it, it lifts up and glorifies God. And it, it, it makes the point that he's faithful, but we all know what really, you know, how it really yeah. went down. Mm. Yeah. So that's super good. And there's so many interesting things to think about here. So like one of the questions I have then, so like when it talks about like, and say like Joshua or like Deuteronomy of like, God commanding, like, destroy everything that breathes or something like this. Like, this isn't, like, an actual, like, like, God didn't literally say kill everything that breathes. This is potentially something that's more like, um, like, an, an ancient Near Eastern, like, war text where we're saying it's, like, God's, like, go into this area and, like, take control of it or something like that. Like, like do you have, an, like, an idea of what's going on here, Dan? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, again, well, there's a number of things going on. A again, it's it's just the way that um, you you lift up and glorify your God and the leader. In the ancient Near East, mm -hmm. and what it does theologically, that rhetoric, what it does theologically is is to say our God was both willing and able to fulfill the promise to bring us into the land, mm -hmm. and you use the re military rhetoric of the time to make that theological point. Um, now something else is going on with the command in Deuteronomy, and I only say there. You know, I mean, it, it just when you come into the land, uh, wipe them out, and then it says, it, Moses says, and 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 don't make a treaty, and don't intermarry with any of them, which is kind of strange. If the first thing is wipe them out, mm -hmm. it's one of those things to say, okay, it's another one of those. Something's going on here that I need to pay attention to. Um, and it probably, again, it probably has to do not so much with, you know, wipe them out as it's a way of saying, stay really apart from these people. Make mm -hmm. sure um, that you don't follow their ways, because if you do, um, you're, you're out like they, they were, because the only way this works is if God is your exclusive God, just as you are God's exclusive people. Mm. That's interesting. And I appreciate that. So 
we have about like 10 or 15 minutes left. And I do want to get a little bit of questions. So I want to jump ahead a little bit here with something that isn't necessarily on the script. But the question is, we talked in the beginning about like a lot of people have this, this, this like build up idea that like, especially like non-Christians, like the God of the Bible is like this violent monster that drowns babies in floods and kills the firstborn in the Exodus and commands um, the genocide of the Canaanites and like things like this. And it's like, well, how could you ever like worship a God like that? Like this God is just like clearly immoral. Um, so like, how would you respond to that, Dan? And like, in kind of like your light of your views of like trying to understand like God and like violence and things like that. Well, yeah, um, I'll actually try to keep this real, real succinct. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the Bible presents a really complex portrait of God's involvement with human beings and God's attempts to work with human beings to accomplish the renewal that God wants. Um, we always we want easy answers, you know, just just, you know, we want things to fit. And I would suggest that the, the Bible's not so much concerned with giving us the easy answers as it is to get us thinking mm. about how we align with the purposes, the will, the work of God in our time in the Bible really illustrates to us how complex this whole issue of violence is. So I, I just come back to this, and this is why I think we do need to read the Old Testament in, uh, in light of the New. Um, you know, it, it's, it's the coming of, of, of Jesus who, who in a, in, in, you know, who said, who is the, is the personification of God, you know, and, and what Jesus tells us is God's, you know, God's impulse is always towards peace. Um, but, you know, the world's a messy place. And, you know, so, so these, these expressions of God's violence, you know, are not so much kind of capricious and angry and judgmental in, in, in the punishing sense. So there's, there's some of that here and there, but, um, God's, God's violence should be seen within the deeper con, uh, concept, the deeper storyline of God really working to, to, to make the world better, to heal the world, to make it new. Um, and we read, we read the Bible uh, and can see and should see that re complexity reflected in our, our world so that we have lots and lots and lots of biblical pictures and ways to think about how we should be witnesses to the Prince of Peace within the context of our own really, really violent world. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate that, Dan. Uh, we'll go to a little bit of Q&A in just a second here. I'm glad that you talked about Jesus. Super important to understand that. Um, so my last question for you before we go to Q&A is just like, how can we make progress in these discussions? And like, uh, maybe talking with like other Christians that may have different views or even just like atheists or agnostics who, who struggle with these passages. Like, like, what do you think the path forward is for progress? Well, I... I, you know, I think actually the, the, the Bible signals what kind of, of reading community reads it rightly. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I tend to see the Bible as a library written by lots of different people with lots of different perspectives, lots of different, you know, opinions and experiences. And so there's a conversation going on in the canon. 
And so what I think that that prompts Christians to do is, is to come together with scripture at the center and not so much duke it out to, to try to find out, well, who's got the right interpretation, but really to listen, you know, as the body of Christ. We, we really do need each other and we need we need particularly to listen to Christians uh, who don't really agree with us um, because they have something to say to us as well. So I, I would say the way we move forward to this is, is that we, we, you know, we, we, in a sense, diminish or step away a little bit from this kind of certainty of, well, I'm right and my interpretation of the Bible, my theology, my doctrine wins, and, and step, step back from that and realize that the Bible is, is God's gift to the body of Christ to bring us together to think about and to and it's it's complex because it really wants us to do that and so moving forward it's you know let's let's do this together and i may not be convinced but you're my brother you're my sister and you know somehow we're going to continue to work together uh to advance you know and and glorify jesus christ and, and give testimony to him to our world instead of using the bible as a tool of division um, and a weapon. Mm. Well, thanks for that. Um, we'll go to a little bit of Q and A. We'll get one or two in. Um, we have a question from Jonah, which says, um, "Can you name any action which, if you read it in the Bible, would make you conclude that the text has errors in it? Um, <laughs> if not slaughtering babies, I'm concerned how much it would have to be for you." So, uh, very important question here. Like, could like how do we understand like potentially like text having errors and like certain things? Let's say like like some people have the intuition like well, God could never command the killing of babies. Like that's just wrong. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I, I I will not for one moment say that there is a, I don't think the Bible really gives us cut and, again, cut and fast answers. Uh, and there are a lot of, of, of texts in the Bible that, for me, just, they don't seem to fit. So, it, you know, it's, it's and, and, and some of those texts, I, I understand, are texts that really challenge faithful readers into some really deep level conversations because they're not easy. The, you know, you want to say, well, this doesn't fit. And and in a way, that may be the point. You know, so I, you know, if, if it doesn't fit for me, I am driven to talk to other Christians, to other faithful believers. I am driven to prayer to say, mm -hmm. God, what on earth is going on here? Um, so, you know, yeah, when we get into the question of you know theological errors, that 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 just kind of that 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 tends to be in a sense on the eye of the beholder in a way. Um, mm -hmm. Textual errors. Now that's 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 a different that's a different creature altogether. But uh, um, it's yeah, I will be the first to admit it's it's not easy. But but that's that's the nature of trying to do. And align ourselves with God's purposes in our own violent world. It's we we need each other. We need yeah. to think this through in all of its complexity and ugliness. Even even in our world today. I mean, what does it mean to be a Christian and mm -hmm. bear faithful witness to Jesus Christ? I mean, mm -hmm. how much violence can you know? We, we've just been so quick to endorse all kinds of violence instead of saying, you know, like God, peace should be our default mode. Mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. that's super good because like yeah like when i think about like biblical ambiguity like 
it, it comes to me like a similar light is like divine hiddenness, like trying to understand like wh- why does God like seem hidden? And it's like, well, I think God, like part of like this story of like having these like these troubling Bible passages and um, the apparent hiddenness of God is like this idea that like God wants us to like work together. Like we're not just here to like get our like get out of hell card and just like live the rest of our lives and have clear doctrine and just like understand things. Like that's just not how this works. Like, like at least like when I reflect on things, like God wants us to grow in relationship with Him and with each other. Um, and if we look at like something like new creation, like we're gonna need those relationships with each other to work together to do things. Um, and things such as like biblical ambiguity and divine hiddenness allow us to do those things in this life. Um, so that's just something I reflected on thinking about what you were thinking about Dan. So yeah, yeah. amen. I'd say amen to that. Yeah. You know, you know, once we have got all figured out and we've got all the questions answered, we don't need to pray. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to seek God because mm-hmm. and I don't I just don't think the Bible lets us do that. Mm. Yeah, that's super good, Dan. I think this is probably a good point to end on. So do you have any kind of like last thoughts, things you need to say before we wrap things up here? Um, only only maybe to to punctuate a point I, I just made, and that is, um, I think one of the one of the key pieces that's important, just in our in our image of the God of the Bible, is to realize that we should be people who are who pursue the path of goodness and nonviolence as far as it will go. I mean, and 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 that really, frankly, we're, that takes a switch inwardly because even even in even in contemporary christian circles we're just we've been wired by centuries just just to to validate all kinds of violence and to justify it and say well yeah you know that needed to happen so that's kind of been our default mode in a lot of ways and we we just we i think the bible as a whole really challenges us you know, to be people who are very, very slow to engage in any form of violence and to see violence as, as I believe the scripture prompts us to see violence as, as, as a very last resort. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I really have enjoyed this conversation and there's a lot of edifying things that at least I got from this. So I'm really super grateful for you and your time. Um, so I have Dan's website link down below or like his academic website with uh, his seminary so you can check it out and see everything going on there um, so much great stuff and as always like if you're new to the channel always can encourage you to subscribe leave a like all that fun stuff if you're listening to the podcast um, be sure to subscribe there really appreciate that and no new patrons to thank since literally the last time I recorded something was 12 hours ago so that was the last time I checked um, but if you do like the show um, you can consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash adherent apologetics for as little as a dollar a month your support means a lot or you can become a YouTube member so if you're listening to YouTube just press the join button right now but Dan thank you so much it's been so much fun so grateful for your time and all your hard work and your scholarship and all those years you spent studying so you could come on I know you were waiting for just this moment to do a YouTube interview with me so thank you so much thank you my life is complete <laughs> Yes. To Jonah and Adam and everyone else who listened, have a good one and God bless. We'll see you next time. Thank you.